when people judge someone as not speaking the correct English, this is usually tied to race, even if you don't intend it to be. And there's a whole bunch of research about that, including more we'll talk about based on my work. So yeah, I discovered it there. I started testing it out. I started talking to people about it. I realized that nobody in the language field really wanted to talk about race. And I found that a little bit odd. Um, they really wanted to talk about culture, <laughs> but they never really wanted to deal with the word race. And I found that reluctance compelling. All right, ladies and gentlemen, today we are pleased to have Dr. Justin Pierce Baldwin-Gerald, who otherwise goes by JPP Gerald on our Shifting Teaching Paradigms podcast. Dr. JPP Gerald is a graduate of the Doctorate of Education Program in Instructional Leadership from CUNY Hunter College. He works in professional development for a national nonprofit, teaches courses on whiteness and language teaching, and has written about language, whiteness, and disability for a variety of publications, including his forthcoming book, Antisocial Language Teaching, English and the Pervasive Pathology of Whiteness, to be released this fall by Multilingual Matters. In addition, he is my colleague on the Nice TESOL board as VP of Advocacy. So, let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Nice TESOL podcast, Shifting Teaching Paradigms. Every year, Nice TESOL hosts a conference where teachers, researchers, and administrators can collaborate, receive essential professional development, and connect with the purpose of enriching the lives of the students we educate. Every month leading up to the conference, we will have a featured guest who will shed light on this year's conference theme. So hello, Dr. Gerald. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, now, I'm just going to dive right in and start by asking what your current role in education is and basically what led you to that role. Um, so and thank you for having me, uh, Yasmin. Um, I actually work in sort of curriculum development and um, professional development management for a nonprofit called Capital Impact Partners. They do a lot of things, but what I work on are several adult training or professional development programs. Um, a couple of the programs are related to housing development. So it's uh, capacity building for housing developers of color, um, basically to try to work against gentrification. And uh, also I adjunct some classes here and there, mostly for fun, to keep my foot in the sort of academic language game. How did I get there? I was working in curriculum I was working in curriculum development for the last five years. So this was a I wanted a much better organization. I didn't like my last organization. And uh, as I was finishing my degree, I was looking around and this sort of it happened to line up. And obviously, like you just said, I finished my uh, my doctorate recently and uh, I wanted to see what I would do afterwards. And so this is what happened. Okay. And I mean, you do a number of things, basically, which uh, I am going to discuss with you today. But 
first, uh, since this is, of course, the nice TESOL Shifting Teaching Paradigms podcast, uh, first, I would like you to tell our listeners kind of how you uh, began this role as the nice TESOL VP of Advocacy. (laughs) It's a pretty boring answer, is that I was asked to run, and... (laughs) I ran. I didn't. I didn't think I would win, but as you know, as you know now, like you know, we you do have to go and find people to be interested, right? And to know that they could do a job. And so, not just people you like, but people you, yeah, people you like, you want to work with, but people who, who could get things done. Now, I'll admit, you know, I've been kind of busy. So there have been some months when I've been less active because um, I've been, you know, graduating and dissertating and all that. But yeah, basically, someone thought, uh, a former president thought that I'd do a good job. And I ran, didn't think I would win. But for reasons I'm sure we will talk about with related to some of the scholarship I've done, I think I had sort of become a little bit prominent in the little corner of the field I'm in. And people, you know, knew who I was. So I guess I won. All right. So uh, let's go ahead and jump into some of those things, those things that you are doing, some of the scholarship. Uh, I would like to, of course, start with the fact that you host a podcast called Unstandardized English. And so I listened to a couple of the episodes, uh, particularly uh, the one where you're interviewing Dr. Moffat. And you mentioned the idea of tension between the individual and the institution, which was also a huge part of your dissertation, from what I understand. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about this tension? Okay, sure. That's a I can talk forever about that. Like you said, it's part of my dissertation. You know, a dissertation people can talk forever. Anyway, um, so the podcast broadly speaking, is about language, but it really tackles the intersection between language, race, um, disability, and then whenever I just have complaints about academia, um, which I don't actually don't really care anymore because I don't have an academic job. It's not my main field. Anyway, um, so I had on Dr. Moffat to talk about an article she had co-written where she had interviewed um, white adolescents to talk to them about how they were developing in their uh, racial literacy. I think I don't think that's or racial identity. Sorry. And you know, in my dissertation, I talked about um, how a lot of solutions, a lot of sort of anti-racist and anti other forms of oppression solutions are very individualized because, for practical reasons it's individuals that consume things, right? It's individuals that read, watch, listen. So how can you propose a solution that an individual cannot do? On the other hand, uh, this contributes, especially in the United States, to sort of an individualist attitude, uh, a savior attitude. And that means that we ignore the fact that it's institutions upholding these issues. But then there's a tension between like, I can't just go and speak to an institution and get them to listen to me. It's still going to be individuals that work there. So you have to find that sort of conflict, that tension, and and pick at it to really understand how you can uh, challenge the hierarchies that exist in our field, but in all fields. So that was really what I was trying to pull at there. And um, in my dissertation, more specifically, I obviously had to interview individuals. um, And I interviewed educators, uh, white educators specifically, who were trying to challenge um, issues in their schools. 
And, you know, the findings I had were based on that and my own experience trying to change things and seeing that you really can't do things by yourself. <laughs> uh, institutions have to change as well. And it requires more than the individual. Now, did they, did these white educators happen to reveal to you some of the issues that they came up against when they tried to, I guess we can say, kind of uh, relieve a little bit of this tension by uh, challenging uh, certain institutions and organizations? Yeah. Um, uh, some of them were revealing things that are not surprising in the sense of, now people who don't do this sort of research might expect that I'm gonna say that people were like out and out racist and all that, not the participants, but the people they spoke to, but that never happened. Um, you know, that's what's on the TV and it does exist, but that's usually not the main obstacle. Um, it's things like these people were, for example, assistant professors, right? They just pretty early in their career and they said, well, I want to change things, but I don't have tenure yet, right? Or, well, I just got a, a new promotion, so I don't want to rock the boat too much. Now, I, you could call that cowardice and it kind of is, but uh, it's also what's sort of built into the hierarchy of the system because you have to keep trying to move up, move up, move up. So the hierarchy and the hierarchization of, of various fields um, makes it so that people don't feel confident in challenging things. There's also, you know, how hard it is to change bylaws. We know this in an organization uh, and organizations, um, if you want to change a policy, sometimes it just is it's just they make it so hard to do so that you run out of energy before you you know and then by the time i mean that that's something i've experienced i tried to change you know i joined so many racial equity committees since 2020 not because i only started carrying them but because they only started existing at some places at that point and uh you know i tried to change language policies that sort of thing and i ended up adding one paragraph to the standard syllabus that nobody pays attention to so Okay. Now, I guess I kind of would like to go back to the root of this line of scholarship, right? So I understand that initially you were a language teacher. I, I know that you taught in Korea and uh, came back and continued that line of work here in the States. And then somewhere along the way, you decided to do some graduate studies. And how, please tell us how you decided on your current line of scholarship, basically um, centering on inequity in terms of language and, and basically whiteness. How did you, how did that whole uh, kind of, arc happen? <laughs> you know, it's not really what I wanted to happen. Uh, <laughs> okay. It's, it's, I mean, <laughs> so I, I, I came back for South Korea, what, 12 years ago now, 2010. And um, I did indeed continue to teach English in New York. Um, I didn't have a K-12 uh, certification, so I wasn't going to be able to do that. And so I said, all right, you know, I'll teach adults, but I didn't have experience teaching adults. <laughs> so I taught at like a summer camp for a while. Um, and then I finally got my first job teaching adults. Looking back, they hired me at my first time doing that because it was a shady, shady school. Uh, <laughs> anyway, 
So I, at the same time, I was getting my master's um, in TESOL and, you know, I graduated from that like 10 years ago now. And I just sort of, I got a more stable nonprofit job for a few years, um, which is how I started doing the nonprofit thing. And then I had met my wife at that point. And at the end of the four years I was working there, she's like, buddy, buddy, this is not enough. So I had to go find a better paying job. Um, <laughs> people listening understand how sometimes the language field doesn't. Uh, so then I got into curriculum <laughs> development and, uh, you know, I kept my foot in the language space. I, um, you know, I knew people from my master's program and I kept in touch with them and I was really interested in that. And I presented at TESOL in Seattle in 2017. So I was still sort of tied to it, but I wasn't really doing anything in it. And then I went back for my doctorate, which is not a degree in language, not a doctorate in TESOL or anything. It's a, just a doctorate in education in instructional leadership. And that has nothing to do with language. Um, but then I took a class my second year and it was a class. We, you had to take buckets of research. So you, there's like a class on disabilities. There's a class on, you know, different aspects of possible oppression, right? And this was the language class. And so I come into this and I'm like, I know this. I got my master's in this. I know this, <laughs> right? And some of it I knew, like, because they did had to talk at the beginning a little bit about the teaching of language and not everybody had done that. So I was like, I got this. But then halfway through the semester, they introduced some really interesting ideas to me. Um, they introduced me to the idea of translanguaging, which I'm sure people listening, if you don't know, go look it up. It's really interesting. Um, and I learned about racial linguistic ideologies, which basically are the ideologies that uh, tie language to people's racial embodiment. It's much more complicated than that. But basically, when people judge someone as not speaking the correct English, this is usually tied to race, even if you don't intend it to be. And there's a whole bunch of research about that, including more we'll talk about based on my work. So yeah, I discovered it there. I started testing it out. I started talking to people about it. I realized that nobody in the language field really wanted to talk about race. And I found that a little bit odd. Um, they really wanted to talk about culture, <laughs> but they never really wanted to deal with the word race. And I found that reluctance compelling. So I started writing about it. And then I got a couple of articles published in journals. And um, yeah, I went from there to, you know, my second article got published in May of 2020. I think we all know there was some stuff going on regarding race and racism in May of 2020. Um, I wrote the article in January, but that's when it came out. And so then all of a sudden, while the language field was trying really hard to figure out what to do, um, and I wonder if they figured it out in these intervening two years, um, <laughs> <laughs> people wanted to talk to me. So I started giving talks and all of that. And then, you know, I got a chance to do other things and I had the podcast by then. And that's sort of how all this came about. There's a lot of articles coming out this year. I did, I had a series in language magazine, um, and you know, then I have a book and all that, but I'm sure we'll get there. It, it, it just was motivated by circumstances, by noticing certain things that were lacking in terms of um, discussions surrounding race and surrounding language. Um, so I know that you recently did a keynote speech for New Jersey TESOL. Um, and uh, 
it is available also on your as a podcast episode on stand unstandardized English for anyone who is interested in hearing that keynote. Um, but I wanted to just to draw the audience's attention to uh, something that you specifically said during that keynote, which was that the imposition of what we call standardized English has always been a tool of the colonial project. So can you please expand on the significance of that statement? Yeah, and I don't want anyone listening to think that I was the first one to come up. I mean, I'm not literally quoting somebody, but I'm not like the first person to come up with this idea. Um, not that Yasmin was saying that, but I don't want to come off like I think that about myself. Um, anyway, you know, I think that you sort of you graduate college or whatever university, um, or maybe you do a career shift and you end up teaching English because it's something that you're told uh, you have some facility with, given that one speaks it. I'm just saying that this is a could be anybody, but it's me, but it could be anybody, right? And so you go off and you you ply your craft wherever, right? Could be at in home, but a lot of places, a lot of people are traveling to do so. Um, don't worry, I'll get to the point. Uh, and no, I, have I wasn't point. worried at all, Justin. I wasn't worried. <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have a point. So anyway, um, you apply your craft and um, you are often judged. Your quality is judged often on, you know, how close your students can get to an idealized version of the language. It's not really about whether or not you can understand each other, right? Not really about whether or not meaning can be made effectively. It's usually about, can they be raised to your level? Um, and then if you take it all the way back to, you know, you know, I, to colonial era, I don't want to say colonial era as if they people have stopped colonizing, but you know what I'm saying. Um, the initial colonial era, the European expansion, whatever. Um, you know, they judged people uh, who they had landed upon for not being able to speak their colonial languages, and you know, there is a direct through line from you know, trying to teach the, you know, quote unquote, uncivilized people the language to the, what we do now. That does not mean that we are inherently doing a bad thing. Although I do think that a lot of the ideologies that go into why we believe we are good at this are tied to bad things, even if we are not the villains ourselves. <laughs> I think I answered the question, but I mean, I answered it in an elliptical way, but that, that is the answer to the question. Um... How, I mean, so of course, as you know, being a member of the executive board uh, for Nice TESOL, uh, our conference theme this year is Shifting Teaching Paradigms, Examining Inclusive Dynamic Practices. And so uh, obviously a lot of what you discuss has to do with this idea of shifting, I guess I want to say what people consider norms, uh, in terms of the way language is being taught, um, in terms of who's at the center of English, uh, the standardized, let's say, version of English. But I would still just like to get your interpretation of this theme and how the scholarship that you've been engaged in uh, really aligns with the theme. So there's 
thoughts I sometimes have on like, you know, branding, right? Um, slogans, which are all necessary things. I'm just saying the approach to it. And like, even though in my heart, I have a lot of right, what I would consider radical ideas. And by that, I don't mean radical just because they're out there, but in the sense that they believe in sort of dismantling systems. Um, you're not going to have a conference, right? This is the academic conference. Uh, you're not going to have a conference within the realm of an academic conference that promises to be truly radical because a conference in itself is not. It's part of how things are. That doesn't mean the conferences are not valuable, though. So when you think about um, what the, the conference theme is, right, I want to take the theme literally. You know, one could scoff and say, well, you know, people have these conference themes, but nothing actually happens. Maybe, but I think that if people actually did what's in this theme, it would matter a lot. Will they do it? Who knows? But I think that especially shifting paradigms, like to me, I, I think that in the last two years, what we've all learned, we've all learned a lot of things. Uh, one of the things I've learned from my research and my experience, because a lot of my research also concerns my own experience. Um, a lot of my research has shown me that we're all sort of following the stories that were set out before us. I don't mean like your parents told you to do something. I mean the societal stories, the narrative of what one should do. And if we're not quote unquote following it, we often are judged as inadequate for failing to follow it. What I mean by that and how this ties to what I'm saying to you overall is that um, I have learned that since most people are really just following the larger story, I can't really, really, really get upset at most people um, for that reason. It doesn't mean that there aren't people out there who are causing harm. That's not my point. I just mean that I, I, I've released a lot of hate from my heart uh, from people who I thought were people I really disagreed with. There is obviously an extreme. There are people out there doing really, really heinous things. But anyway, on the other hand, I also lost a lot of trust for people who uh, didn't really align with what I was trying to see in the world. So it means that I have a much smaller group of people I really trust and so forth. But in the world, I'm not interested in, I'm getting to this point. In the world, uh, I don't care about the people who are out there really completely disagree with me on things. I am not trying to convince anybody who's completely opposed to me anything, right? But all the people who are just following the narrative, right? Who are just, you know, going along with what um, has been handed to them. And I say this as someone who very much did for most of his life and obviously to some extent still does because we all do. They can all have their paradigms shifted because that's what's necessary. The way they see the world has to be shifted. And it's hard because when it happened to me, you know, uh, it's not like I'm talking about some cult stuff, but like, no, I mean, like when I started to see the world differently and understand the way these systems interconnected and understand the way that these systems, you know, could harm people, it was destabilizing. But once people get through that, uh, there is a lot of really good work out here to be done. And, you know, you accept that it's going to be hard, that justice is, is always feels far away, especially right now. Uh, but you know, that's only because we're not all working together to do it. I, once again, <laughs> am going to uh, kind of quote something that was uh, written 
in an essay on uh, Medium, uh, an essay that you wrote on Medium, titled, There Were Never Any Rules. So you say, what if we didn't have to settle for normal? What if we could make an entirely new version of our world, our country, and especially our educational institutions? The only thing stopping us is a series of rules that are rapidly being revealed as fictitious and arbitrary. So first of all, a uh, very powerful writing there. And would you be able to give us an example of one of these rules that of course need to be shifted and how it has impacted our educational system and by extension, us as individuals trying to achieve, let's say the societal story of success. This is funny because I wrote that like three weeks into lockdown uh, when they were, um, you know, everything that bureaucracy was stopping wasn't stopped anymore because of the danger, right? You know, the fact that all these places said, you well, you can't work from home and then suddenly like go home, right? That, well, there weren't, <laughs> you, know, you know, so uh, that's when I wrote that. And I was trying to find, it was, you know, you know, you were here, I was in New York and, and that was, I had, a, I had an infant, you know, my son was a month old at that time. And I was trying to hold on to hope for him. Um, and think that not some cheesy, like we're going to come together, but just like, well, this sort of proved to me that if people chose to do something, it could occur. That has been very proven to be true because a whole bunch of nonsense has happened in the last two years and it proves that none of the rules have ever meant anything. <laughs> but, but when it comes to what we're talking about, and especially in sort of a language education sense, um, I really think that the rules and the narrative that I was talking about, they're pretty much the same thing. I, I didn't have the language to call it the narrative back in 2020, but that's what I refer to it as it now and in my dissertation. And, um, you know, one of the things that that uh, is sort of a rule is, you know, what level of quote unquote intelligibility um, makes someone employable or, you know, the way an accent is supposed to sound, right? Mm. And people listening to this would be like, oh, I don't think an accent's supposed to sound a certain way. Yeah, I'm sure mm -hmm. you don't think that explicitly, but I'm sure you do think it implicitly. Mm -hmm. uh, because there's people who, um, even people who, I don't wanna say nice people because people can be nice, it does not mean kind, um, but people who seem to be friendly will still say things that they don't think are harsh or harmful. Um, things like, you know, well, well, I can tell because she had such a strong accent and I didn't have an accent. I'm just like, see, but everybody had, you know what I'm saying? Like that, that's not, no one would think of that as being like racist or something like that. And I'm not saying that it is, although I do think it's part of the same larger system, but like the way we understand accent as being away from us, right. And, you know, being different from us, like the way that accents are thought of, I think is one of the biggest um, rules that needs to go away. You know, I had a co-worker who was Korean, not in Korea, by chance, here in New York, and uh, we worked at a senior center, 
and they didn't really respect her, but um, the seniors, I mean, and they couldn't come up with a legitimate reason to not respect her because she was good at her job, but they didn't respect her because of who she was. And they would always bring up how she quote unquote couldn't speak English whenever they, she, you know, handed out rules or something like that. Right. And, you know, eventually she quit. She, she quit like working altogether. Um, but you know, so like that's all just accent based nonsense. She, you know, anybody in that position, these are people who are well qualified for anything. And, um, and I, I don't even want to use the word well qualified as if it's an objective term, but you know what I'm saying? Um, so yeah, I think, the the rules the narrative around accents uh is probably one of the biggest thing that needs to go <laughs> um but if we are looking at these uh what did you call them again fictitious fictitious and arbitrary rules as a whole and we're looking at shifting away from them and we actually succeed in doing so what do you think will be one of the impacts that that will have? <laughs> I mean, that's that's the whole article series that I co-authored in Language Magazine was about what would happen if we got rid of the rules. I was specifically speaking about whiteness and all of that, but they're all part of the same set of rules. Um, sure. mm-hmm. And, you know, the conclusion we came to, you know, we don't want to say will as if it's will happen, but would happen is, you know, maybe we would be able to that assess our students' success based on how comfortable and happy they were in our classrooms um, and not how closely they matched uh, the expectations of the institutions that were considering dealing with them or not. Um, I think it would give a lot more power to the racialized and otherwise minoritized. Um, it sounded like I did not try to rhyme that, but... Um, and I you think, did it anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think that it would um, it would upset some people who have some unearned power right now, um, which is what happens whenever I seem to show up in the public. There's always some older gentleman who doesn't want to deal with it. These are the Zoom comments I get in my webinars. There's like some guy wrote six paragraphs about how he was not going to stop teaching standardized English because blah blah, blah. and I. <laughs> I don't know. These people are ridiculous. Um, but yeah, so I, I think it would just be a much kinder way to, you know, teach the languages. Um, and I think that you, with a lot less pressure, you know, people grow when they're comfortable. And we're out here, you know, accepting their discomfort in the language for the fact that we believe it makes them more economically viable. So, you know. Okay. Now, I would really uh, like to bring up, I hope that I can say this name properly, Ezeel, because you brought up your son a couple questions back. And I, I want you to tell us a little bit about the Ezeel project. <laughs> You know, you got it wrong. It's Ezel. Um, oh, is it really? Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, there you go. Okay. Uh, yeah. I haven't done as much with that lately because I've got a new job, although I'm certainly always open to uh, doing it. But basically, technically, the Ezel project is the classes I was teaching and also all my public scholarship. Like, technically, the project is everything I do 
but um, I was teaching these classes for any educator. Well, they could be anybody, but mostly educators who were interested in trying to decenter whiteness in their organizations. Most people were educators because that's most of who I know. Um, that's actually what led to my dissertation. But I'm, I also, you know, give talks and, and, and so forth. But the reason it's called the Ezel Project is, well, obviously that's my son's name, but, you know, ever since early 2020, around when I wrote that article about the rules and, you know, I started to, people started to pay attention to what I was saying to some extent, um, I realized I had an opportunity to change my son's experience away from my own. I didn't have a hard life or anything like that. But, you know, I didn't have a lot of social, social isolation in, in my schools, um, you know, and I uh, didn't want him to go through that. Now, how is what I'm doing going to affect that? Well, obviously, depending on where I live and so forth, he might not be, you know, depends on who was in the class and all of that. But also a lot of the isolation is based around identity. Um, and especially since I'm neurodivergent and he, who knows, right? Don't know, he's two. Uh, you know, there's there's double the chance potentially for, for him to be isolated. And I think all the work I'm doing and working with educators and hoping that educators consume the podcast and the reading, um, I can have some sort of ripple effects that ultimately make things safer for him, at least psychologically, uh, and any kid who's like him. And would you say that this is the most fulfilling part of the work that you do? Well. The impact, this impact that you just discussed? Well, I don't know what the impact is, right? It's only been a couple of years. These things take a long time. Um, the immediate gratification um, is, you know, people like the talks or whatever, but that's not, it's when, when I get messages sometimes, emails, or a Twitter message um, or something. And someone just reaches out to me to talk about that, what, how the work I'm doing has been impactful for them. And, you know, it's out of the blue. Um, I think that that's really nice. Um, I'm glad it's resonant for people. That's really what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to formulate ideas that are resonant um, and that can be part of the ongoing conversation. Um, but I, I just, I think that there are a lot more people out there who are interested in not making this field remain the way that it is. Um, the field, the concept of language teaching, whatever. Um, and I think the only reason that the field is able to continue with what it's doing is because it keeps us precarious to the point where I left, right? Like I'm not a language teacher anymore. Um, but a lot of people are in precarious positions financially. The industry would like that because then how can you gather together to challenge the things that are happening? You don't have any power. Um, and I think if, if through my work and others work, uh, we all do each other and they couldn't stop us. So the feeling that someday, even if I'm bleeding from the outside, because I'm not you know, in the field, I'm just, I just have my ideas from my experience and my research. Um, if that someday feels like it could happen and it, we get a really different industry, really different field practice, uh, the hope that that may happen is the most gratifying part of it. 
Awesome. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, and I, of course, before I let you go, would like for you to tell our audience a little bit about what you have coming up, upcoming projects. And now, of course, I know that you have a book which is titled Antisocial Language Teaching, English and the Pervasive Pathology of Whiteness that is due to be released this fall. Um, but are there any other uh, upcoming projects or things that you would like to share with the listeners and of course, tell them where they can find you, et cetera. You know, uh, the funny thing is that there's going to be people who, well, if it, I don't think there's anyone who listened all the way through this and would find the title of my book to be shocking, I guess. I feel like they probably <laughs> already stopped, stopped listening like 15, 20 minutes ago, you know? Because if you just say that title and you don't know anything about what I've been writing about, you're just like, what? Which I think is going to happen to some people who are looking around the language education space. It's going to be an interesting time. So really, everything is going to be about the book at this point. Even the podcast is going to start promoting the book more. Um, you know, the um, there's that. Yeah, I have some conference talks coming up, but they're, the dates aren't set yet. Um, and now that there's more in-person conferences, you know, like I really enjoyed doing the keynote um, in New Jersey last month. And, you know, I hope that I can get a chance to do a few more of those, um, but those ask you very early. Um, so if I were to get one of those, it'd probably be next year at some point. So, you know, really it's the book, the podcast still exists. It's a new episode every other Tuesday. Nope, every other Monday, um, although I re, uh, I'm releasing like a, re a couple of re-releases this summer because, I don't really feel like doing the episodes right now, but I'll get back to it to promote the book in September. Um, and that's really where it is. It's uh, published by Multilingual Matters, which is a legitimate publisher. So these people wanted me to write a book, so I did. And I hope that people like it. It's actually not expensive, by the way. If you hear academic book, right? It, um, some of these books are like $90. I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, you realize that it's just a few publishers who are selling things to schools who are giving them a discount or getting, you know, it's just a small number of people making money. The academics don't make any money off of it, but you have to write them to get a chance at tenure. It's, it's a mess anyway, but they asked me to price my book and then they gave it that price. So it cost $25, which isn't like cheap, but it's cheaper than a hardcover from like Barnes and Noble or something like that. Unless you have a membership, but anyway, <laughs> uh, it'll be out soon. Um, and I think that I hope that, people find it engaging, um, find it to be worth their time. I really tried not to write it in an academic way. If you know who I am and you read my work, well, then you know by now that I don't write that way, but you know, it's still technically an academic book with APA citations and all. Um, but I tried to make it for people to read and consume, even if they weren't like nerdy doctoral student types like I am. So, well, I'm not a doctoral student anymore. Um, so I hope people enjoy it. Yeah, the book, that's where it's at. Okay, great. I'm really uh, looking forward to it. And yes, I, I also know you have a website um, that our listeners uh, could also go to if they're curious about uh, some of your work, which is jpbgerald.com. So 
Yes, uh, definitely. Uh, we look forward to what's coming up, what's what's coming up to the book and any other projects and speaking engagements and keynotes and any other ways that we can follow uh, all of the the outstanding work that you've been doing. Well, and also I will be, you know, at the nice T-Cell conference if you all want to hear me talk. So <laughs> we, 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 this is, you know, a promotional thing for that. So, you know, I, I of will, course, I will be there. I'm giving two talks, actually. So. All right. So you heard it here, ladies and gentlemen. You can, of course, catch JPB Gerald, Dr. JPB Gerald, live on November 4th and 5th. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you for joining Nice TESOL's Shifting Teaching Paradigms podcast. Tune in next month for more powerful TESOL educator talk.